0: We're back in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be starting the book's eighth chapter. And last week, we looked at an incredible scene. We examined how a prostitute's surprise visit derailed the dinner party of a respected religious leader. Let that kind of sink into your brains, the craziness of that. We had this woman who crashed a meal in order that she might honor Jesus, that she might lavish him with this dramatic display of gratitude. She discerned and had come to trust in Jesus's extravagant grace. Yes, here was a man who owed her nothing, but she believed he would give her everything. Someone who at great cost to himself would welcome her with open arms, would forgive her sins, would restore her to God and His purposes for her. And guess what? As we saw last week, she was right. Jesus did not rebuff her, but commended her love while washing away her sin and her shame. And we were left last week marveling with her, awestruck at Jesus' is just incomprehensible heart And now as we turn the page before Luke is going to dive into the next beat of his narrative, he's going to take a moment to sort of foreground those who were with Jesus at this time. And here's what we read in Luke chapter 8. Soon afterward, he, Jesus, went on through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had gone out and Joanna the wife of Chuza Herod's household manager and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means we get the sense that for Luke to be with Jesus means far more than to just be in his general vicinity Those individuals who are with Him have joined Jesus for the journey. They've enrolled us as apprentices. They're devoting themselves to Him. They're absorbing His teaching, His way, His mission while living in close community with Him. And their growth occurs as they watch and listen and dialogue with Him as they learn from their missteps and they, as they respond to Jesus in faith. You see, being with Jesus is part and parcel of our discipleship. And ultimately, it is the explanation of our power. In his second volume, Luke writes this in Acts. He says, Now when they, and he's talking about the rulers, the elders, the, the scribes of the day, saw the boldness of Peter and John, two of those mentioned in our passage here in Luke. As they saw the boldness of Peter and John and they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized. What did they recognize? They recognized that they had been with Jesus. It's not just about believing in your mind or giving Jesus lip service. It's what Jeff, spoke to us several weeks ago, abide. Be with Jesus in the everyday stuff of life. Watch how He lived. Listen to His words. Dialogue with Him. Let your missteps be used for His instruction and respond to His invitations in faith. Now, in the other Gospels, it's the 12 apostles that get all the publicity. But Luke informs us that Jesus' inner circle included both men and women. To have women disciples was unheard of in this era. In this society, women were expected to stay at home as much as possible and to avoid even their male relatives. Men were not to be alone with women or to speak with them on the street. You have one rabbi at the time who's advising, talk not much with womankind. They said this of a man's own wife. How much more of his fellow's wife? Hence the sages have said, He that talks much with womankind brings evil upon himself and neglects the study of the Torah and at last will inherit hell itself. Jesus strongly disagrees. His world transforming good news is for all people. And not only does Jesus engage directly with women, scandalizing His contemporaries, but He extends the invitation to them to accompany Him, to witness His ministry. Jesus brings them into the intimacy of His daily life to hear God's Word from His own lips and to put it into practice by His side and alongside His male followers. These women also play an integral role in the advancement of God's kingdom. They are the sugar mamas of Jesus' ministry. They provide the financial resources necessary for their itinerant evangelism. These were women of influence and means. They were women with checkered pasts and various experiences of brokenness. All of whom had been beckoned to follow and transformed by Jesus' healing presence. And you'll notice an inner three among the ladies. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna. Just as there was an inner three among the twelve. Peter, James, and John. We'll see why Luke draws our attention to these men and women in a little bit. But let's keep reading. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, came to Jesus, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot. And the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Some fell among thorns and the thorns grew up with it and choked it And some fell into good soil, and grew, and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus tells the crowd a parable. A parable is an extended metaphor. It's this kind of imaginary world or scenario that the The speaker crafts and invites his hearers to step into. A parable offers those who hear it a new perspective from from which to view the world and their life. Its goal is to challenge us, to surprise us, to lead us into transformation. And some of you might complain that Jesus is being cryptic. He's speaking in riddles. Come on, say it plainly, man, so we can understand you. But Jesus doesn't march to our drum. Yet know that his aim is not to conceal. Parables are meant to illustrate. They're meant to be instructive. But this way of communicating it requires a level of investment from the listener. One cannot wholly be passive and still comprehend. Jesus intends for those who hear to listen carefully And to continue to seek him for insight. Because he will provide the key to understanding. So let's kind of invest this morning. And immerse ourselves in the picture that Jesus paints. So he tells us about a farmer who's gone out to plant his crops. And on first glance, this farmer might strike you as foolish. For one, he does the ancient Near Eastern practice of sowing before plowing. To us, that screams of poor planning. I've seen your neat and tidy backyard gardens. I don't think any of you garden like this. Second, the farmer sows his seed widely and indiscriminately. It seems wasteful. This farmer is either hopelessly naive or endlessly hopeful that somehow seeds will sprout in places they have no business sprouting. We also see that this farmer is comfortable with loss. We don't sense any sort of a scarcity mentality in him. There's no indication that he's hoarding his seed He recognizes, yes, some seeds are unlikely to sprout, but the possibility of failure does not outweigh the potential for unexpected successes. Some see foolishness in the farmer. I see his liberality, his confident optimism. He knows his seed is strong. It's good. And then now Jesus will articulate four different conditions of soil upon which the seed falls. So let's kind of observe each in turn. Our first type of soil is the hardened earth. In this soil, seeds cannot penetrate. The soil, it's too compact, it's too compressed. Well, how does this happen? Jesus, who grew up in rural Galilee, he's remembering all these different footpaths that bisect and border his neighbor's fields. Those patches of earth, they had become hard on account of the assaults of outside forces. Those stretches had been repeatedly stepped on and trampled upon. Wheelbarrows had been rolled over them. And each abuse resulted in additional hardening. There were other outside forces, too, working against the fertility of that now toughened soil. Hungry birds saw the footpaths as a place for easy pickings, where they snatch up seeds that may have had a slim chance of success if they weren't gobbled up by the birds. So that's the first type of soil, the hardened earth, The second type of soil that we see is the rocky ground. This is the bane of backyard gardeners. You know, these large, impenetrable rocks, they make it difficult for plants' roots to spread, to grow deep, to draw forth the nutrients that they need to survive. Rocky soil also affects uh, how much water the soil can hold. Rocks, they contain, they create obstacles, they They retain no water and they add no nutrients to the soil. The only real way to make rocky terrain fertile is either to do the hard work of removing the stones or or building up the topsoil above it or planting organisms that are hardy and persistent enough to break through. So that's the rocky ground. The third environment that Jesus mentions is the thorn-infested soil. The potential of this soil, it's instantly obvious. And the farmer's seeds, they penetrate, they take root, but competition for space and for resources in these plots is fierce. Promising plants are, are choked, they're stifled by insidious weeds. And the detrimental effects of this kind of rivalry is only really seen at harvest time. In the end, the fruit of the plants that are grown in thorn-infested soil are immature and underdeveloped. They might look a little bit sad or stunted and they don't provide the nutritional value to others that they ought. But then there's a fourth type of soil, the rich, well-tilled loam. It's in this good soil that the quality of the farmer's seeds are actually revealed. A hundredfold harvest is a tremendously good harvest. It's it's astonishing. It's nearly miraculous. These are bumper crops that will produce foods that will nourish and sustain whole communities. The results of the seeds planted in this soil will fill bellies. It will cause families to flourish. There will be many a friendly neighborhood feast because of what grows in this soil. And these positive effects, they won't only be felt immediately in the present. These yields will have impact on times to come. I didn't realize this when I was first digging into this passage, but yield, as best I can understand it, focuses not simply on the calories created, but on the multiplicative power each harvest produces. For most of the land of Israel, the average yield was seven to tenfold. That meant for every every seed sown, you got seven to ten seeds back. Well, the farmer's seed yields a hundred seeds back for every seed sown. That's exponential impact. The farmer brings forth fruit that not only feeds, but it multiplies life in the world. We're not only talking about feeding your family, your village, but now we're talking about feeding your county, your nation, your world. We're not just talking about feeding your contemporaries. We're talking about feeding future generations. See, the yield in real life is worth every bit of that sown seed that was wasted. One last comment before we leave this fertile plot of earth. I've, I've been in the Puyallup Valley right before they've planted strawberries and I've walked into fields of just this beautiful brown dirt that you could bend down, you could stick your fingers in five inches deep. You could smell just the richness of it. And never once did I get into those fields and go, wow, look at this pristine, untouched wilderness. Now, even if we can't see it, we recognize... The labor that has gone to preparing the land for planting. The state of the field is not accidental, it is intentional. Okay, so what do we do with Jesus' parable? I can hear some of you say, you know what my life really needed? It needed a guarding lesson from an ancient carpenter who moonlined it as a rabbi. <laughs> like, that's, that's great. Thank you. That's very helpful. And to your snark, Jesus would reply, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Don't get all snarky. Pay attention. Now, the men and women who have committed to following Jesus, they have to admit to themselves in this moment that while they're hearing what Jesus is saying, they're not actually fully getting it. They're catching hints that he's saying something profound, but they can't get the pieces to fall into place on their own. So what do they do? They do the exact right thing. They draw close to Jesus and they ask Him for insight. Hey, help explain what we are to learn here. And this is what He says. Verse 9, And when His disciples asked Him what this parable meant, He said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they're in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The seed is the gospel Jesus has come to proclaim. It's the good news of God's kingdom. It's the promise of salvation and forgiveness of unquenchable life and new belonging for those who cling to Jesus. It's the incredible announcement that Jesus, through His life, His death, His resurrection, He's defeated the powers of evil, sin, and death, and He is making all things new, even us. And here is the message, the Word, that has the ability to nourish us and to bring us to life not only as individuals, but whole communities and future generations can be fed and transformed and brought to life by this Word. And don't forget that God sows the seed with liberality. He's endlessly loving. He's ever hopeful that His seed will take root, that it will bring forth life. What do we remember in John 3.16? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him, whoever believes in Him, would not perish but have eternal life. Now if the seed in this parable is the saving word of the Gospel, then the soils are the various conditions of our heart. And we read, verse 12, The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. For those whose life resembles the path, why does the hope of the gospel not penetrate their hearts? We often assume that these are simply the folks that are most callous to the Lord and His ways. Shame on them for their rebellion. Jesus' parable, it puts a different gloss on it. He sparks our compassion. He says often the people that appear the most resistant are those the ones that have been most used and abused. Stomped down and traumatized by others and they're, they're coarsening. It's a defense Mechanism as they seek to protect themselves from further harm. And these suffering souls, they appear also to be special targets for demonic attack. Our enemy seeks to kill, steal, and destroy, to snatch away the possibility of healing and new life. And encountering these people should evoke our tenderness and care. It should drive us to our knees as we pray both for God's kind healing, His supernatural softening, but also for the thwarting of the evil designs that are arrayed against them. Lord, scatter and scare away those predatory birds. Next, Jesus says in verse 13, and the ones on the rock are those who when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. What does having no root, no moisture, translate to in our lives? It's interesting to me that Jesus specifies that these people hear the good news and respond with joy. The gospel, it sparks in them this Wave of elation. They, they thrill to discover God's incredible heart, his, his plans for the cosmos. Yet it appears that they are content to simply settle for emotional reinforcement. For that sense of immediate personal well-being. They desire the warm fuzzies, the satisfying rush of endorphins more than they truly seek transformation and new life. They believe, but they can't be bothered to follow. They can't push past the obstacles or the inconveniences that are necessary to put down roots in the Lord. They refuse to spend time wrestling with Jesus' teaching and His way. They refuse to process through things that are difficult or unexpected with the Lord in prayer. They refuse to exercise the discipline Necessary to persevere when one doesn't feel like coming to worship or enduring the awkwardness that comes when we're trying to get rooted in Christian community. As a result, their roots stay shallow. And when they're first faced by any sort of adverse external circumstances, they wither and fall away. They do not chase unquenchable life and victory. They chase whatever comfort will tell them in the moment, you're okay and all is well, whether that be true or false. So while those resembling the rocky soil will make no effort to commune with the Lord, those in the next category have no room for God in their life. Verse 14, and as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. It's interesting what we let, what we allow to crowd out God's work in us. Sometimes we let our anxieties about safety and belonging displace the one who tells us, do not be afraid, I am with you always. It's a counterintuitive response. We cling to our fears and our worries because we're accepting the illusion that if we focus our attention on these matters, if we give them our angst, we are somehow still in control. That is a false consolation. And what it actually does is it chokes out our ability to trust the One who is able to provide for our needs and to settle us in a family, a supportive spiritual community. Refusing to make room for the saving work of the Gospel is all about refusing to trust at the end of the day. Jesus came and He proclaimed, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. Yet we're concerned that if we clear our fields, we'll miss out and be deprived of some, something good. The scope of our ambitions and our desires for ourselves, for our businesses, for our kids, they're vast. And we fear that maybe God doesn't care about what we care about. Or maybe He doesn't actually give the best gifts to His children. At the end of the day, we're having a crisis of faith in God's character. And as it says in Hebrews 11.6, without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Therefore, the fruit our lives produces is immature Because it is cultivated without a living, breathing faith. So let me ask you, what might spiritually immature fruit look like in you or your family's life? What would you identify as the primary thorn that has sprung up to compete with what Jesus wants to grow in your life? Pull it out it's impacting your future harvest and then finally verse 15, as for that in the good soil, they are those who hearing the word hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. What makes the good soil good is that it has been prepared the power the miracle is in the word of the gospel. But the saving word of the gospel has to be reacted to in faith. Jesus calls us to broadcast his seed widely, to spread it extensively with hope and with confidence among all kinds of people and all sorts of situations. And he says, do not fear that that seed is defective. It is miraculously effective. It's able to bring life and nourishment to billions of people across millennia. But we must respond to this revelation, which is why Jesus will go on to charge us in verse 18. He says, take care then how you hear. For those who do not hear and do not respond to the Word of God will fail to bear fruit. They will fail to find nourishment themselves. They will fail to bring life to others. So how do we hear well? How do we prepare the soil of our heart for the work of the gospel in our lives? Here we're told by Jesus to hold God's Word fast in an honest and good heart and to bear fruit with patience. He's building upon what He's already hinted at. Pray for the Lord's kind healing, for the hungry birds to be scattered, put down deep roots, clear away obstacles, uproot weeds, persevere in hope and trust. But more than anything, hold fast to Jesus, our life giver, the word made flesh, the good news of our salvation. I love how one biblical scholar puts it. He says this, those who do see and hear, however, they do not do so on their own because Jesus is talking about the mysteries of the reign of God. They must come to Jesus and ask Him for understanding. Good listening requires vulnerability to hear what we may not want to hear, to accept the truth, to expect a future that is brought by God, to be constant in obeying God's Word. In this text, Luke gives us a living, breathing image of what good, well-prepared soil looks like. It looks like the men and the women who have left all to follow Jesus. Like the twelve and that community of female disciples that we met at the beginning of the chapter. They are by no means perfect. They didn't have their acts together prior to meeting Jesus, but they have heard His Word and they have responded in faith. They've determined to be with Him in the everyday stuff of life. To watch him, to learn from him, to dialogue through their confusion and their difficulty, to persevere in trust, in hope, in commitment. Their soil was prepared. They they prepared it as they received God's word, but the miracle was not their preparation. It's the seed that was planted in their lives. And their faithful surrender meant that they were able to bring forth fruit that would last. Fruit that even today is giving us life. You realize that we have heard the gospel because of the fruit from those men and women's lives. Those literal men and women's lives. So I want us to get specific as we sit under Jesus' teaching here. What is one way that Jesus is inviting you to prepare the soil of your heart and your life for His gospel fruit? In His grace, He has brought the seed. How will we respond and prepare our lives, our hearts to receive what He wishes to do in us? Let me pray. Dear God, Lord, You are an incredible Lord. You welcome us to Your table. We are messy. We are sinful. We are not ready. But still in Your grace, You came. You preached good news to us who were far off. Us who were wandering in our sins. Us who were in bondage. Us who were traumatized and forgotten. And You have drawn us near. Thank You for Your grace. You have done all the work, God, but You invite us to respond to You in faith. So God, this morning we do respond. We draw near to you knowing that you are not far off and that you will draw near to us again. May the physical act of coming forward, may the symbolic meal remind us of what you have created us for and all that you have given. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.